Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to the legendary critic Molly Haskell. She is a writer with many books who along with her husband Andrew Saris has marked American film criticism for many many decades and it's a real honour and pleasure to talk to her. If you enjoy the episode please remember to like and subscribe. You can leave a review as well that really helps a lot but before you do any of that Enjoy the conversation. Finishing your, frankly, my my dear book today, I can hear that accent. I can hear that um, Virginia, <laughs> trace of a Virginia accent there. That's because I haven't woken up. I mean, it, I always have it, but I think I have it a little more now than when I'm fully awake. <laughs> <laughs> With the coffee takes the edge off. Yeah. <laughs> Last week, I interviewed Janine Basinger. I saw that, yeah. And she was she was saying very nice things about you. Oh, I feel the same way about her. She's been fantastic. Yeah. And I, I never see her, but I, I'm very aware of her. It just seems like there are these vo- female voices in film writing, you know, yourself, Janine, you know, and going back to Pauline Kale and that are that are really vital voices that 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 feel as as more relevant today than ever before. Well, that's thank you. Uh there are a lot today. I mean, I can't get over how many. I mean, there's so many good film writers. That one of the problems is there are just so many now. When I was Pauline and I, well, Janine wasn't writing for a regular news outlet, but mm. when we were writing. Um, it's one of the things I'm writing my memoir about. The day, the '60s and '70s was such a different time, for obviously for lots of reasons. But there were newspapers and magazines, and there just wasn't. There weren't so many. We were just discovering. It was sort of the time of reassessing American films and uh, the New York Film Festival was beginning and New York was a, had a huge number of retrospective theaters and there were film societies were beginning on campuses. So it was really the big burst of cinephilia. And it was like we were all talking about the same films. Now, of course, it's just wildly diffuse and dispersed and so many countries are represented, so many minorities are represented. 
Um, it's just fast and, and sort of different age groups being appealed to. So it's just a whole different um, cinematic landscape. But yeah, I think there were, there were other women writing, um, let's see, Joy Boyum at the Wall Street Journal. And there weren't many, but there were. Well, for one thing, for one thing, like at the newspapers, film at that point, film wasn't being taken that seriously. So women at, at newspapers got to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a big deal, you know, so there were a few women, not particularly feminist but women but now of course they're they have their own blogs and they have their own and their you know their own bylines here there and everywhere i just i wish i could just even keep up with it it's just just you know it's just almost too much of it and also of course people write at greater length now because they don't have a magazine or newspaper format to adhere to so you have not only more people but more just more words more <laughs> more quantity and quality i remember in england the first film critic that i ever read with any regularity as a as a sort of boy growing up was a, a sunday times critic called dillis powell oh yeah yeah that's right it was great and uh, again i mean i don't remember oh, it's so long ago since i read her but it was it was probably just that tradition almost coming over from theatrical criticism of just sort of well-written solid you know uh critique that's the other thing that one of the other things that was changing in this period i'm writing about all of a sudden it became very different well yes it was being at first in the times that bosley crowther who was there for years and years and years wrote of it wrote about film as if he were writing about a play i mean the the, the writer and you know you just sit went in order the performances of this and of that and 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 you would never put your personal you know you would never say ah, i use the the pronoun i then all of a sudden it was personal and it was this sort of recognition that there was no such thing as really objective criticism especially with movies you know we had um mm. all been formed in a very personal way by the movies we saw we had inherent biases that we recognized and and therefore use the pronoun I. So you, all of a sudden you get these voices that, that that are very distinctive voices in film criticism, and also then you get lots and lots of arguments too because it was a it was being the whole there, there really hadn't been a, a body of, of sort of accredited film criticism. You know, there wasn't a canon, there wasn't a, a sort of playbook. Uh, it was just all loose out there. It was all um, kind of the wild west in terms of what you could, how you could write about it, what you could write about, what films were important, whether you should call them film or movies, you know, <laughs> middle brow, the high brow, middle brow, low brow, sort of accrediting forms that had previously been considered disreputable, were, you know, were, were becoming creditable, like this was sort of a little later, but anyway, in the, well, in the 70s, science fiction and horror film, which had just been B-movies before, were being tr- given a, a movie treatment. So so everything was kind of shifting and changing, and it was it was exciting and, and contentious. And, and talking about that formative period when you, you have we have we all have our you know we're like ducklings you know breaking out of the egg and the first thing we see imprints us that's that's what we're going to follow for the rest of our lives what were those formative experiences of cinema for you well i grew up uh, in richmond and it was virginia and it was not that there was at that time most big cities had one foreign film theater and the rest was just uh, whatever hollywood the first one in hollywood there were no revivals no reflective so i wasn't exactly I, I was a late blooming cinephile but the film that really kind of uh shook me up was uh, diabolique the Clouseau film, which took place in a, in a boarding school. I was going to a sort of girl school, so I knew what that kind of fetid atmosphere was like. And it was it just blew my mind. It was it was so so dark, and there was this sort of evil and sophisticated. It was sort of not like anything I'd ever seen. And so I was already kind of interested in for France and French culture. And so that that movie just. It was a whole different ball game as far as movies were concerned, and I think that was one of the things that made me want to go live in Paris, which I did after I graduated from college. And there, I, I guess it's interesting because person, the man I would marry, Andrew Saris, the film critic, was there at the same time, but we didn't know it. We would we would meet only a couple of years later, but we were both living in West Bank hotels, Left Bank hotels, and probably going to some of the same movie theaters on the Left Bank and seeing the same things, which were not just French films, but you know, American, because this was a period of the cahier and the reassessment of American films. I mean, it started with the French because they had seen that films had been held up during 
the, the Second World War, and then a whole a lot of them were sort of opening at once in the Cinematheque and other places. So they saw all these films at once from directors like Hawks, and the obvious ones are sort mm. of Hawks and Ford, but all, some of the other directors too, Peck and Paul, all these directors. And so they they were they didn't see they didn't see films in high versus low. They just saw all of cinema was was equally interesting. And they loved the American films and they began the process of kind of assessing and evaluating them in taxonomy. And then Andrew was influenced by this when he did his taxonomy of American film directors. So that was the, the period when it was just, you were just learning, you know, you, you were just seeing things, a lot of films that weren't seeing, I mean, just seeing these great French directors who were making their, who were coming out now, René and Bresson and the Nouvelle Vague, Truffaut, Godard, all of that. And it, it was just so exciting. And then with American films too. And of course, there were fights because Andrew was an auteurist and Paul and Kale hated the auteur theory. So they, they were just squabbling in print and saying nasty things about each other. Most <laughs> polling was nasty. He was the nastier one. I have to say that anyway. Um, and so some people, because I was just looking at this book that came out at that time. Uh, it's called Favorite Movies. A guy named Philip Nobly put it together. And she, Pauline's not in it. She has better things to do or something. <laughs> but it has a lot of interesting pieces by different critics of the time. Uh, David Denby, Stephen Farber. Andrew and I are both in it, some of the English critics and uh, of the favorite film. And in the beginning, he asked everybody, why is it? Why is everybody so why? Uh, why are they so argumentative? And and they say it. That's what I've said. It's just because it hasn't been this whole the, the canon hasn't been hammered out yet. And then he asked them, why are they so vituperative? And one person is anonymous. I'm sure sure it must be Manny Farber, although I, if it were Manny, I don't think he would have been anonymous. He's, he said, because they're all assholes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's honest. It's... <laughs> That's the way he saw it. Anyway, everybody but him was an asshole. It sounds like Twitter before Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Thank just... God there was no Twitter then. Oh my oh. God, it would have it up. Oh my God, is that enough? Art? Yeah, it was. It was. It was like that, and it was also like blog. I mean, they were closer. The reviews were closer to blogs than to, to the conventional review too. Mm. In, in the personal in the personal dimension of it. How long were you in Paris for? Because that must have been amazing, sort of being in Paris, seeing movies, and then coming out of the movie and being in Paris. You know, it was fantastic. It was just wonderful. And I didn't have any. I didn't have the framework of kind or anything like that to go mm. by. But it was, I mean, seeing seeing the Truffauts and Breath and, and Godard for the first time and just knowing how great they were. Of course, I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. That was frustrating. But mm. I was I was just smitten. And I, I, I mean, I, all of them with Romare Chabrol, I still, I think they're my first loves in many ways. And it's always interesting. Another thing that one of the sort of, this is not quite related, but it's one of the areas of disagreement of Pauline and Andrew was that Pauline said, I guess, I don't know if this is true or not, but she maintained that she never wanted to see a film twice. I mean, she felt that Mm -hmm. the first experience was the important one, and that's the one she wanted to give her readership. But for Andrew and for me as well, I think one of the joys, extreme joys of, of movie going and movie loving is seeing things again and reassessing things and seeing how they look at in different periods and whether they hold up. And, you know, uh, your 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 feelings shift and the, the movie scene, of course, the movie's still the same, but it seems to be slightly different in a different era and all of that. So I, I think that's part of what a different, a, a really a different approach to film criticism. One is just the, I mean, I, I, I think the reviewer, the daily reviewer, of course, is the you go with your first response you know that's mm. what the, the readership of a newspaper wants the first response but i mean today i don't think anyone does that i mean i read manola dargis or somebody who writes in the times or or you know for a large audience and they they all acknowledge having seen something twice you know and i think and also in a way movies may be more meant to be seen twice now so i may say kubrick or somebody like that anyway just different different approaches and they were all mm. jostling with each other during that period it's so funny having those rules as well it's always i i kind of admire it to some degree but i i also suspect they're always there to be broken there's no you know what's the point in having that rule if you're not going to break it (laughs) no well how can you resist i mean some movie that you've loved you're not going to see it again my god i just i don't get it 
You know, why did you know why why eat one chip? I mean, I've never met anyone who's eaten one pizza. You know, you either eat pizzas all the time or you don't know they exist. There's no there's no middle ground. Well, I guess you could say that they're different flavors, but they're not that many different flavors. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> this one is better than anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also often think that re- repeat watching makes me um kind of a little bit more critical of films as well, because I sort of think to myself, well, this reminds me of The Searchers. I could just be watching The Searchers. You know, that that's... Yeah, uh... yeah that too. I think you you start to see more. If you, The more you see, the more you see uh, the sort of overlapping influences in film. And the more you see some director and some other director, I, I think one of the things too that Andrew always emphasized, and Marty Scorsese is doing this, says this all the time, is how I think people are not, especially then, and I think to some extent now too, that audiences general audiences did not they listened more than they looked they were just they mm. were very they were very attuned to the dialogue they could always criticize the dialogue but they had no clue about sort of directorial choices about cuts i mean you know editing or you know uh camera position any of those things and it, it's very andrew talk of course for many years and that was the thing he would talk in his class he he said well you know you have this first response which is almost childlike where you just where those are real people up on the screen and you just enter into it uncritically then if you're in a class or if you are a critic um you start taking it apart and that's an awkward period and because you you lose that that immediacy that you had before so you you understand you would have to you have to count the cuts how many cuts are there uh, get familiar with tracking shots and how they're used the 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 length of focus all of those things so you take it apart and that that's a time when as i say is awkward and uncomfortable and then but though hopefully you put it all together again, and it's just a much, much richer experience. So, cause, mm-hmm. so if you get sort of the first response, because you're still responding to those stars, you always are, to the people on the screen, and yet you can understand in- some intention, and you get you get nuances that you might not have gotten um, if you'd never kind of appreciated uh, film style. There's always that thing of like, I think, um, you know, on social media and a lot of lot of people approaching film at the moment are sort of it, it they're a little bit in the thrall of their enthusiasms. Uh, and that's that's great. Enthusiastic yeah. enthusiasm is good, but you've got to describe why you like something and why something is good and why something isn't good, why something isn't working for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just you can't just get in the mood of it and sort of applaud it. And, and I mean, that's a great response if you feel that way, but then break it down. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's good enough, it'll survive criticism. It'll survive, analy- uh, uh, you know, exactly. analyze. Yeah, it'll survive and, and, be, and probably uh, look even more interesting. I've also read from Reverence to Rape your you know, landmark study. I would say the role of women, how Hollywood is uh, portrays women, and it, it's such a, a, an eye-opening study. Even even after all these years, because this was obviously published first time in uh, the eighties, I, I, I imagine. Oh, seventies, early seventies. Seventies. Okay, I'm reading the revised edition, so I think it might go up to yeah. uh, the mid eighties. Yeah. Right. So what was the inception of, of that book? Well, um, I was the women's, as it was called then, the women's movement was sort of getting off the ground. And I had always had a, a kind of, I don't think that I was um, wildly, well, it was just, let's just, I had read, um, people were reading things like Betty Friedan. Uh, mm. I had read Simone de Beauvoir. That was the one, The Second Sex. That was the one that sort of stirred me, stirred my feminist juices. And so the women's movement it was everybody was forming sort of consciousness raising sessions and one trying to there were there was sort of activity trying to get more women placed at the times and this that and the other and so i thought well what about taking a look at the way women are treated in film i mean that was the sort of my feminist instinct to look at film that way so that really that was really the beginning of it and it just i guess i had started i had started writing reviewing for the voice under andrew and then i went to other places but i was at the first at the voice and i started reviewing from a feminist perspective Mm. I mean, I would do something like Butch Cassidy and I would say, what's with all these buddy films? Where are the women? Because it happened to be that there weren't very many women. You know, it was a period. It was a great period for sort of the new independent cinema of directors like, you know, Scorsese and Milos Forman, um, Coppola and De Palma and all these people. But what happened because they were getting away from the studio system, they weren't obligated to use women. I mean, the studio system had women uh, on an equal equal level and equal pay with men, and they assumed that they were making films for women audiences. Now, that is no longer the case at, at all, even now, actually. Mm. 
But um, that, so they definitely wanted to appeal to women. Whereas when these these young Turks started making personal films, they, they, they felt no obligation to either include women or to appeal to women. And I'm not saying that the films don't have a universal appeal, but they just weren't at all women oriented. So I, this struck me as, as, isn't this interesting? Here we are in this period of discussing equal pay and equal rights for women, and yet they're being squeezed out of movies. So that was kind of the trigger, I guess, that sort of sent me into the into the past to look. And it was just so much fun to do. It was a little bit hard because the movies weren't available the way they are today, the movies mm. from the past. But I had Andrew who could remember every plot of every movie. And he would start telling me some, there would be what we now call melodrama, like a woman's film with with Mar- um, Margaret Sullivan and Charles Boyer or something. And he would start doing the plot and I would start, he would start crying and I would start crying because it was such a weepy. <laughs> but anyway, that's how I got some of my, my material and anyway, my information. I mean, what you present is a real sweep of the whole history of of cinema from the silence um, on. And what I found, um, one of the bits that I found sort of the hardest to take was uh, your characterization of of my beloved Laurel and Hardy as misogynistic. And I was like, oh, no, please, no. That was harsh. I wouldn't, I love them too. You know, I would never do that now. I think I, I think you do this when you're doing something that's at all polemical you uh-huh. maybe just overstate it sometimes. And yeah, I think I did overstate th- that because, I mean, that's what they are. I mean, in a, in a way, they are ma- male and female together. I mean, they were, they're kind of, you know, androgynous in their own mm-hmm. way. Anyway, they're wonderful. I wouldn't have, And with W.C. Fields, of course, I would never want to have a cinema without W.C. Fields either. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, Keaton and Chaplin. Um... Oh, Keaton is just, my, my God. I just, I've come back and he's one that I just, I, I just watch again with increased appreciation every time mm. I see him. He's just, sort of, and Chaplin, of course, too. They just, they are cinema in a way. Um, during the pandemic, uh, I, I teach at university in Italy, and, and during the pandemic, I, I would give the the um, students like films to watch, and we watched Sherlock Junior, and we talked about it afterwards, and um, it was so funny because they all said, "I thought I was going to hate this black and white silent film, you know, yeah. made way before my time," and practically everybody said. This is my new favorite film of all time. Really, it's, you know? it's one of my. I put that on my ten, the sight and sound ten favorite. Oh, me I think. too. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, so much. Yeah. Um, there's something I would say about that, but I've forgotten what it was. Anyway, oh, I know what it was. Yeah. So Pee Wee Herman just died, and I hadn't. He had just gone by my radar completely. So I thought, well, I've got to watch a Pee Wee Herman movie just so I know who he is because he was not my era for television or anything. So I watched Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure and I did find, I mean, I, I was drawn to him in certain ways. I think he was talented, but in the end, he has this whole uh, segment where he goes through whatever studios, the Universal Warner Brothers, through the studio back lot and all the sets. And it just reminded me so much of Sherlock Jr. and 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 of Keaton doing his own acrobatics, whereas Pee Wee Herman, you see that he's always been cut. I mean, he, he doesn't pretend to do it himself, but all the kind of the physical comedy is is he's not it's not him i mean just it's a very he, what he does is very limited compared to what keaton does oh yeah no, I mean, no one is comparable to keaton i don't think even lauren hardy i think had their own stuntmen and doubles though they, they weren't yeah uh, no nobody was like Keaton. nobody yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. well there was a, a film that he did uh the college one i think it might be yeah. called my college or our college or something and um it's so funny because he's supposed to be playing a wimp and he's just absolutely the most athletic <laughs> little man you've ever seen. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think any studio would let him do that today. It's so dangerous. They couldn't afford the the, the insurance on, <laughs> on, the, on the feats that he does. They're just so outrageous, outrageous and risky. Absolutely. And, yeah, and the title of your book as well, I having heard the title long before I read the book, um, I didn't realize how literal it is that it really is, you know, at the beginning, it, there is a sense of reverence. There is a sense of idolatry of putting women on a pedestal to some degree. And then, and then yes, you hit the seventies and like you, you, 
there's nary a film without a woman getting raped. Well, it's sort of Victorian. It is the Griffith, especially, but Sal and Cinema is sort of Victorian, and it's you know yeah. the sexes, and then yeah, all of a sudden in the in the 70s it was uh, was de-repression. You could show stuff on the screen that you hadn't shown before. The Hayes office was no longer operating, and what what happened was not that you got equal treatment or anything, because we still hadn't reached a point where women were supposed to take the initiative. I'm not sure if we ever ever will exactly reach that, or whether we should. But anyway. <laughs> That's another story. So and then so this sort of misogyny was just sort of out in the open and, and explicit. It does feel so, sort of punitive. It does feel like, OK, Diane Keaton, you want to be a, a teacher in New York and this is what and you right. want to have sex with different people outside of marriage. This is what's going to happen to you. And Right. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I think we're still living with that in a, a little bit, you know, just to go back a little bit. But the pre haze, the pre code days, I'm a. Uh, again, I think this was a little bit of a result of COVID and having the opportunity to go back and hunt up lots of films I hadn't seen. I had a little bit of a pre-code watch list that I went through and, and those films were so interesting and raunchy and different. And even it's something so like that. Oh, there's so many. Even like the Tarzan films, I watched a few of those and wow, they were so sexy. I to watch those, yeah. <laughs> I know, they were just casually sexy. They were just what they were which Hollywood has never been again, I mean, now or ever, was cosmopolitan. Mm. You know, they were worldly. They weren't na- They weren't just naive and, and, and parochial and the way some films were, a, a way that sort of the Hayes Im- office implicitly was, narrow and parochial and puritanical. They just weren't any of those things, and you, you sort of can't believe it. I think a lot of it is the European influence or the influences of, of outsiders who are coming into the film industry and who who keep it. I mean, directors like Lubitsch keep it keep it cosmopolitan for a while after the after you know after the code, but he does it sort of sort of in this cl- clever sophisticated way and and also he was so good i mean he's just another one of my gods that i think he influenced other directors he made it possible for other directors to, to be slightly sexy and racy and to see how to do it i mean like billy wilder said i learned everything from lubitsch but so thank God for somebody like that who who did have this sort of cosmopolitan influence. But yeah, I mean, you see these pre-code films, you can't believe it's the same place that's putting out the more puritanical ones that come later. It feels like the chronology's all mixed up. You know, this is, surely this should come after. Surely we should make progress and this should come after. I know, I know. We just, uh, sort of, and it really regresses. The cinema really does regress after the pre-code era. Yeah. And the women too. The women are wild and fun and, and nobody seems to write. I mean, it's just really interesting. You know, one of the things I've, I've, I've always sort of objected to, and it's become this kind of buzzword. I, I remember when I read, uh, nothing against Laura Mulvey, but very smart woman, but I remember reading her essay about visual pleasure and narrative cinema, about the male gaze, G-A-Z-E, mm-hmm. the gaze, which has now become a buzzword used everywhere. It's a sort of suggests a monolithic view of movies that men are always objectifying women and my feeling is not only what number one is that watching movies is such a complicated uh multi-form experience it's not just you're not just identifying with your own sex on the screen Mm -hmm. i'll identify with a man on the screen a man can identify with a woman on the screen um the women also eat their their parts even after the code in the 30s, and I would say in the different ways in different eras, but the women themselves had such authority and such spunk and such spirit that even when they were playing conventional women who got married and lived conventional lives in the end, they just didn't, they didn't feel conventional. They didn't feel like just objects. So I think that it's just a narrow way of looking at it. And it sort of puts men in the, in the, in the driver's seat all the time, which I don't think they are. And this, so this is one, I, thing I wanted to make it I wanted to write and from Reverend Surrey it was a polemic against the indignities or the, mm. the lack of uh, uh, of independence of women's roles in movies but also to suggest how how women kind of sort of subverted that in many many ways too so that it was a complicated and there was a lot of ambiguity and it. it wasn't just male possesses woman male objectifies woman it what you know that 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 line was just too monolithic for what movies were and like so the role of the, the femme fatale is is you, you know can't be contained yeah know? exactly yeah it's it's just that sort of i don't know there's a there's a, a way that that sort of ideological neatness doesn't allow for the wildness of of life and and the exactly. experience i mean yeah. it's much more yeah. visceral i'm sitting in a 
more visceral and more than is more ambiguous. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not just, yeah. I think that, and that's the, the trouble with ideology is, and I'm afraid it's persevered in various forms in film theory and the, in the academy is it's just, it's just really, um, it's, it's not about aesthetics. It's about ideology and it's about victimology. It's just always mm-hmm. seeing women as victim. And if, if we can't see now that women are some, for, 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 all right, for example, women, if women are always to be looked at, what part do they play in that? Why are they always dressing to be looked at? You know, I mean, come mm. on, you know, what part do they play? They're engaged in the world actively. Exactly. And so when you come on to, to sort of the present day, and as you're, as you're saying, the present day, we, we, to some degree, feminism has has had its victories, but while at the same time, you do look around and you do see, well, there, there are more female directors, but there's no sense of parity. You know, we have uh, Greta Gerwig doing a wonderful sort of commercial success with Barbie, but these are these are kind of exceptional figures rather than rather than. So, so how do you see look at the industry and see what's going on at the moment? Well, I do. I think the word industry is good that good to use. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today right there because it's it's a corporate mentality and you see it not just in movies but throughout finances and every all other kinds of pursuits that at the top men are just more comfortable with men <clears throat> I think that's also there is a backlash against women, and you see this in the in the in the right wing. I think they're wanting to go back to a time when women had babies and stayed at home. I mean, there's still a huge number of people who who want that. So yeah, I think it's it's still an uphill battle, and I think as I think this has always been true that women have been on a shorter leash, and they they are, they have less latitude, so that when they do make a film. If they fail, if they, I mean, this uh, history is littered with the stories of men who failed at this and that, and then became great directors. So women don't, they don't have the the luxury of of failing. Mm. I think that's one of the problems. Um, and men are, I think, men are just quick to say, well, okay, we can write this one off. So I think that's one of the problems. So it is happening, but it's happening gradually, and it's happening more in countries that don't have industries or don't have the kind of corporate setup that we have i think almost every other country our france um you know some of the african countries in asia women well not so much in asia i don't see too many women directors coming out of there that they're, they're more patriarchal i think mm. than we are um anyway so i think yeah i think you just it's just slow in coming and i think for women also this kind of i mean i think women are divided women are ambivalent about well, let's just start with taking the initiative in sex because we were talking about that. I think they're very ambivalent about that. I think this is one of the reasons we have this whole trope of women going and getting wasted in a bar. And then, you know, they want they somehow feel they want to feel feminine and want men to come to them to to yeah all of that. So they, they, they don't want to be the big boss. And yet you have to be the big boss if you're going to make a movie. It's a real sort of authoritarian position in a way. So I think I think well, that's one problem. It's not doesn't come. I mean, look at and even Greta Gerwig has Noah Baumbach at her side. That's pretty good, too. You know? you know, yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. Not to diminish what she's done. I, I won't get onto bar because I'm not a big fan of it, but good, mm-hmm. good for her anyway. But yeah, she does have Noah's there. So sort of, I don't know how much influence he has, but he's certainly something someone to 
lean on. Yeah, it's funny as well because I think that thing of of it's, it like goes into what we're talking about earlier. In that, if you're having a battle, then there isn't much room for nuance. You need blunt instruments and hammers to hit people with. Then when you're looking at criticism, which is a sort of different different ball game to the industry itself, you need nuance and complexity. And you you know you don't want blunt instruments. You want you want your scalpels. And so you know from an industry side of things, people talk about diversity and inclusion and the Bechdel test and this and that, which are very good yeah. things to tick boxes with, but they're not very good ways of actually looking at films and seeing how films operate. No, exactly. Again, you're, you're applying political or ideological principles to something that's not that, that's art, that is art. Also, I think you have to look at the kinds of films being made in Hollywood now, too. I mean, very, I mean, so little that is interesting and independent is getting made there. That I mean, what speaks to them is sequels and series, you know, if they can be, and blockbusters. That's what I mean, this the, the Barbie obviously speaks to it. I mean, I think it doesn't I don't think it means that they're going to start making feminist films, but um, they're going to make films that maybe nod to feminism or something like this one does. Um, but yeah, but it's it speaks to them on commercial and commercial terms because it's a blockbuster because it's gotten a lot of attention so um, I'm sure they're trying to figure out how, right now how to do a, a prequel or a sequel um, so that, that's one of the problems the kinds of films that are getting made now that aren't really cinema as, as we know as we knew it or know it yeah there is a sort of almost like a, when we were talking about women's films in the you know du- during the studio era there might be a resurgence of that coming back in terms of things like I don't know the ABBA movies and the, which are very aimed you know they'll have a sing-along uh version in the theater so so that will be you know specifically to bring in a female audience yeah I th- yeah they they, they they do sort of have if, if, yeah commer- i mean they're, they're picking up on some of the commercial assets that, that that could appeal to women yeah that's but that's <laughs> but that, it's not really cinephilia at the same time i, have to really, admit. No, 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 I, ha- no. I must admit when you were going over the some of the countries and places where you know, uh, women are having maybe making a few more films. I think the UK is is actually getting quite good at this. There's a fair few filmmakers who have come out of, in recent years, have come out of the UK, like Charlotte Wells, um, yeah. Joanna Hogg. There was one that I saw at Cannes this year called How to Have Sex, which was exactly yeah. about the topic you were talking about, the women going out, getting wasted and and basically problems with consent and that's by Molly Manning Walker um her first okay. film I've written it down. it's it's really good it's a really good uh it's sort of like a bunch of girls who are in their 16 17 uh, age group and they go to like a, a greek island town to just you know no parents and they're just there purely to get drunk and and have sex and she wants to lose her virginity and it's uh, yeah it, it's it's it very much skates the lines of what is consensual what isn't consensual what are the pressures uh-huh. that everybody's how can you do this safely when when you're still kind of a child yeah yeah and that's the trouble that that, that that's another thing that's so different from my day is they have they want to have sex at su- such younger age and they want to do it there was one movie uh i don't remember the name of it, it didn't have wide exposure but but it was about a woman who is the same situation. She's not that young. She's just in her 20s or so, um, gets wasted and, and raped, and then what she's going to do about it. And she tells her parents, and they're very um, sort of loving and helpful. But at one point, she's her father's. She's driving with her father, and he, he said, "Well, why do you just? Do, why do you do that? Why do you go to bar? Why do you have to go to bars?" And do this drinking she says because i like it so i mean they want to do that and at the same time they don't quite know how to put the brakes on and, and there's no framework for it i mean when i came along we were so repressed we were so repressed we had you know it was called first base second base third base that you could let a guy go and it was took a long time to get from kissing to petting if you if ever mm. but if you i mean it was just such a taboo of of, of having sex young and I've having it. Of course, this was sort of it wasn't pre-pill, but the pill wasn't being widely used or, or talked about. Exactly. Well, I don't know. Not where I was anyway. Mm. Um, but the, the, the idea of getting pregnant was just I mean, your life would be over. So this was what chilled us and, and maybe in, in a bad way as well as a good way. But we knew that this, that men were going to do this. I mean, there was somehow this the lesson that 
this is what men do because they're sort of environment, you know, evolution and the evolution is programmed them to do it is to have sex. And so we knew to, somehow it was our responsibility to keep them from doing it. And somehow that has shifted. Um, I'm sure it's better in a lot of ways, but in other ways, I think women are less protected than they've ever been. You know, I think they've given, I don't know. I just, I, I can't, I can't, I can't evaluate really whether they've given something up. I mean, how negative or how positive a thing it is. And I, I, I mm. look forward to seeing this film. There was one, I can't remember the name of it. I'm on memory so bad a couple of years ago by, What's her name? Emerald something. And oh, Emerald Fanning? Was, yeah. Well, about the revenge of uh, uh, a, a woman. A, a promising young woman. Yes. That's the same kind of story about revenge for that kind of a, a rape. A woman actually, I believe she commits suicide afterward or something. Anyway, I mean, it's a very real issue. And I, I think movies, I, I'm glad movies are dealing with it. It's just it's just very troubling. It seems to be, I mean, it's that thing that when you said earlier, um, you know, movies are universal. There is that sort of the, the fact that universality is in itself sort of defined. It's it, universality is in, in it, it isn't, re, it's like it's one of those things that is sort of like, seems to be a neutral term, but actually must have some sort of predefining characteristics before we, before it arrives, you know? Uh, do yeah. you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? It's all like uh, we're using it, but we really mean it looks like us. I think that's true. I think it, it, we're so. I, I I feel this all the time when I'm reading people, for instance, in these. Um, I see a lot of these papers from Columbia Film School uh, students about the kinds of hetero patriarchal late mm. capitalist practices. And I think I, I sometimes think, well, don't we see that we are inside this too? We're being shaped by. I mean, we're not that we, we we write as if we're somehow outside of the of the problem or the of the of the era that we're writing about, but we're in it. You know, we write in it. So I think it's very hard to to sort of evaluate as if somehow in in, in this kind of abstract way. Anyway, I don't know. I, I just think sometimes I feel like I, I I'm so for better or worse, and usually I think it's for better. I'm I'm sort of out of this particular race, and I don't know what's going to come of it. I mean. I mean, movies, there are going to be more and more movies about he said, she said, and of these things. And it just goes on. I mean, I thought about that with the Harvey Weinstein thing. Oh, uh, number one, you know, how many, I mean, he's one person. How many others are not getting caught, you know, and are not going to get caught and are going to be covered up and get to go back to business as usual? I don't know. It's just, it's a discouraging thing. And I think in some ways we were better off when society put these brakes on us. I think there's a, I had a definite sense that we sort of, it's, seemed that so-called witch hunt that some people wanted to use that, that idea oh they said oh no it's gone too far what do we do it seemed to stop very quick it was like oh we've got him that's it he's done no more yeah. nothing more to see here you know it's all fine now it's just like what <laughs> him and cosby were doing it all and that was it yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and now you're writing the, this memoir. Uh, that must mm. that must be uh, sort of uh, an interesting place to be headspace wise. That you're going back into the past, even as you're sort of seeing new things happening. Yeah, it really is fun. Um, it, it is. I, I mean, I, I I acknowledge in some how much better. And as I've, I've already said, I think the cinema scene is today. It's just so much more diverse. Obviously. Mm. This, and even if they're not as many women as we'd like to see making films, they're making them and they're making uh, and people are aware of them as filmmakers. So I mean, it is interesting, though, how that is one area where I mean, we had, as people have pointed out, we had quite a few film women filming, not a huge number, but in early Hollywood mm. and how that how things you know again how how things regressed at a certain point in the mm -hmm. 50s maybe you know the 40s and 50s and rest so now we have to sort of invent the wheel all over again but in the most respects is so much awareness but in a way the trouble is this is one thing that just occurs to me all the time how i'll see films at the film festival um that some of my friends who are not particularly who love movies but aren't cinephile will never see they don't even know mm. that the names of some of these asian directors and never will so there's a kind of fragmentation and there's no there's no common ground um on the one hand you have uh everything everywhere all at once is winning the academy award and, and a lot of older people aren't watching that mm. and you have these fairly esoteric films from you know india or, or, or um Asia one and not and not even all that esoteric some more than others 
And so the cinephiles are seeing those and not even all the same. So we're, we're just not ever having the same conversation. And that's what we had. What I, what I say is it wasn't, um, it wasn't the golden age of cinema. It was the golden age of, of appreciation mm. where we, we were realizing that, that that cinema was an art. Even American films were art and appreciating them. And it was, it, it was, an, it was exciting. And, and American films that, hadn't really been seen or appreciated were being brought forward and reassessed. And so all of that, and it, it, although there was a lot of disagreement as well, I think in this book I was mentioning earlier about favorite films, I think somebody, maybe it was the editor said that on 10, 10 best lists, you know, critics would be in critic we still are in critics groups and end of year um, prizes. And some critic would have something on his 10 best films that somebody else would have the same film on his 10 worst. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I love it is, that. It is. But it's still, we were still seeing the same films. I mean, those 24 films, 20 films that were listed in those two guys or however many more were all being seen by the same people. Whereas now it's just, everything is, and, and I, I think it's interesting that there's so much writing about starting in, I don't know what, September about the Oscars. It's just, um, mm-hmm. there are more people writing about the Oscars than are watching it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true in recent years. Absolutely. Was- I mean, there are some entire sort of like, I think, well, Variety certainly has an awards editor and you know, most major publications oh, yeah. will have an awards editor as a, who does nothing right. but but write about re- awards. And it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I am I agree with George C. Scott in this, you know, he was the only actor to sort of turn down an Oscar just because he thought it was rubbish. <laughs> he, did, he didn't agree with the idea. I've forgotten that. Good for him. Like people that turn down the Nobel Prize. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, yeah. he called it a meat parade <laughs> not a nice man in other ways but the but um you no, know but right on him, that occasion. Yeah, yeah yeah talking about that that sort of canon of sort of one of the things that i always look back to is when i was growing up in the 1980s and i was having my first experiences of cinema i could look at back at the two decades that sort of preceded me that you know i had to catch up on before i could go forward and there was oh, yeah. just a very short list of names it That's was it was thing. bergman exactly. kurosawa exactly. kubrick Fellini. Yeah. you know there were these you get them in, under your belt and you're in a pretty good position to argue well, with people well, until when i was coming along we even were aware of silent cinema i mean that mm. was what was i say this it's not quite true it's a sort of exaggeration but i say you could you could hold the history of cinema in your hands, which of course now uh, it's just vast, vast in time and in space. I, I mean, there's no way, and that that's why I think it has fragmented. We have fragmented into generational kind of appreciations because I think that the young people now have no and how how could they have an interest in silent cinema unless they are really hardcore cinephiles and the, the, the earlier films don't speak to them. I think. I think they they're just so um, overwhelmed with their the now of the internet, everything that's going on and the, what's available to them that they don't even maybe turn there. They don't even look backwards to out of curiosity. I was doing a um, how did she say it? Okay, I was doing something on his girl talk on uh, his girl Friday out here, and some young woman called to do a, a pre thing interview and said, "Well, is it relatable to young people today?" And I, I said. You know, maybe not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe Cary Grant, maybe they just could not even, I mean, Cary Grant gets away with a lot in that, and he might not get away with any of it to an audience today. It's a different world. So maybe not, but maybe they would like to see something that's of a, of their past. You know, and I'm, cause when I was teaching, students wanted to know about the Depression. You know, I hadn't been in the Depression, but I, I knew about it from reading about it. And there were films that, I mean, like even Gone with the Wind, you know, all these films that re- related explicitly or implicitly to the Depression. But I don't know if there is that, that sense of, volit- of volitional curiosity about history now. It's almost like we don't have anywhere to stand still for a moment to even, you know, I mean, I remember being bored for a week and, you know, I was bored for a week in 1987 and, and yeah. the rest of my life I've been doing too much, you know, it's. Uh... Exactly. And I think that's what everybody's thought. Of, I mean, it's terrible to say, but breathing a sigh of relief that no movies are getting made right now, because now we can look at the ones that we haven't had time to look at uh, because of the strike. Um, and, you know, and, and COVID, too, was a chance to kind of regroup and, and watch things. Uh, I, I don't know. It, 
I think it's probably theater going is going to be a specialized thing from now on with things like with Oppenheimer and Barbie will get people in theaters, but not the reg, not just regular you know, openings. I, I don't know. So mm. It's, mm. that's a whole different thing, too. That uh, and, and also, I think that's the, the, the series. I think it's always important to talk about series because they've taken over in a way the storytelling function that Hollywood movies used to do. I don't think narrative is 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 how you know it's all kind of it's not just not that it's postmodern but most serious movies play around with time and and don't aren't really it's just i don't know david lynch or whoever they're not interested in, in sort of straightforward narrative mm. so i think the series and some of them as, as you know as well as that are just fantastic so they've taken over that function a lot i think so and people and they're the ones that people talk about the way they used to talk about some the current opening some some movie opening also that's where we go to for characters you know i mean the, yeah the... psychology yeah mm. which most movie makers have turned their back on yeah characters the last 20 years are, are walter white and tony yeah. soprano you know it'd be yeah. difficult to sort of point to a character in cinema with the same exactly. yeah. yeah that's right and and they get to sort of um create it over time so yeah, it's a, it's a golden age, actually, for character acting. I've got one last question for you, Molly, which is a question I ask everybody on the podcast, which is I'd like uh, to ask you to recommend a film book for our listeners. Oh, wow. Um, I want to just say before that I, how much I love British crime series. It's my favorite. Ah, right. What, what, what are you watching at the moment? Have you got okay, any particular ones? You... Well, I loved um, Shetland. I was mad about it. I, I was just falling in love with somebody. I, I felt I fell in love with um, what's his name in Shetland. Um, anyway, anyway, I, I, my mind is going to go blank now because I still haven't had my coffee. But Douglas something and uh, Henshaw. No, I don't know. I, I, I should have thought about it because I really, really love a, a bunch of them. Anyway, Douglas Henshaw. Yes. Douglas Henshaw. Yeah. You know, I've not uh, seen that one. I should watch that. Yeah, I love that. And the others and the others. Oh, I can't remember. I just I wish I could because I would love to just pay tribute to some of these fantastic actors this is this is what it means to be old the titles and names just elude you sorry oh no it's going to get worse because i'm already i'm already there no you're not no you're not you got you pick up uh, pick picked up on some of mine i just did a, i don't know if gene mentioned it i just janine mentioned it we just were asked to do the the 10 the 12 or something best movie books mm. and so i had to make a whole list um, I found that really hard to do because it depends. I put one of hers down on the list. I put Andrews, the American cinema, but that that was sort of has a historical function. That was 1968 when he mm-hmm. was, you know, bring, bringing the Cahiers formulations to bear on American cinema. Um, oh God, I just made a list. It's so, it's so interesting making that list up because there's just so many different ways of approaching well, yeah, it. I know that's the problem because things like Louise Brooks' memoir or the David Selznick memos, which which I love, which I, which I read. I put mostly ones that I not. Oh, Kevin Brownlow, who's sort of indispensable. Um, he did a great documentary as well on Buster Keaton, going back to Buster Keaton. Oh, I've got to see that. I've yeah, I think that. it's on YouTube. I think it's called When the Circus Has Gone, or it's. Oh, I've it's... got to see that. Okay. Well, if you just um, if you just Google Buster Keaton, Kevin Brownlow, it'll come up on the videos. Okay. So also, I love you know I love one of the things I want to the point I'm making in this book. It's about critics and. Critics sort of got, a, I've always had a sort of a bad name and I've never understood why, because I've always loved them, whether it was in English or, you know, literature or whatever. I've loved reading critics. And so mm-hmm. a lot of, there are a lot of um, anthologies with critics reviews in them that I read that some of them that came from this National Society of Film Critics. There's Gavin Lambert. I mean, there's just so many who... Yeah, it seems to be a thing that we need to defend nowadays as well, because there's, you know, a, a, people are, are, are kind of, in a way, more literate when they come to discussing their taste. And, you know, um, there are all these little phrases for tropes and things, which uh, I never had when I was growing up. I just watched TV yeah. and quite just swallowed it whole, basically. Yeah, um, you know, people would say, "Oh, they fridged that character," and I was like, "What? They did what to that character?" And there's a, you know, I, I have that, to find out what that means. What does it mean? That's a new one on me. What is it? A fridge, a, fridging a character is usually killing off a female wife, relative or, or wife, usually, in order to give a male character emotional depth. So oh, some, it's great. something Wes Han- Anderson does a lot, or, you know, or you'll have a Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry, uh, you know, he mentions his wife was killed by a drunk driver, a hit and run. And and so it's oh, it, 
fine. That's fantastic. And it also That's- has the sort of, I think, uh, I didn't read this in the definition, but it also has the thing of saying, and they're not gay. They live on their own. They're men. <laughs> right. And they, they have a wife. They're certified. Certified heterosexual. Exactly. Also, yeah. get, also, just to get the woman out of the way. I mean, they do this all the time in Hollywood movies. Some woman gets killed in the first thing, and then the man's on his own. Um, I never thought of it to give him emotional depth. I don't think they go for that in, in the movies that I'm thinking about. But it's just sort of to get her out of the way. She's sort of dispensable, you know, to get the action going. She, she, she's a sort of drag on the action. But that's a great term. Um, I, there was. A, I'll just say this this book because I'm in it, <laughs> because I can't think of one that I, that sort of would prevail over all the others. But I'm not even sure what it's called. But Wes Anderson put out a book uh, about an, uh, Asteroid City in which he has ex, he has essays of all sorts of different people mm. about the West. They're all about the West, and they have Kazan in there, and they have uh, Kent Jones has a piece, and who else? They're all. I mean, it's all sorts of interesting pieces. I have one for. I have one on the. The Billy Wilder film with Kurt Douglas, Ace in the Hole, Ace in the Hole. Oh my so, God, what a bitter film that is! What a wonderful I know, film! It's but... the darkest film ever. So my essays, and then a whole bunch of other essays, and it's just an interesting book, and it has a picture of Asteroid City on the front. It just came out. I'm not saying it's indispensable by any means. It's a quirky, kind of entertaining book, just like the film. It's mm. like the film. It has, you know, it has all these different people in it, <laughs> and you just. <laughs> You go from one to another. It's sort of there. It's sort of this deadpan thing where one is against the other with no explanation. You know, no necessary links. That That's sounds a, great. That sounds well, great. Sort of a fun book. But no, that wouldn't be the one I would sort of recommend above all, except that I just can't think which one I would. Um, well- well, that's okay. You 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 have to come on again and when you're okay. There's so many, there really are, and I'll get my list out. If I'd known you were going to ask that question, I would have had my list at the ready. I can't even remember what I put on it now. That's how bad it is. But I, I, I did think about it a lot, and it was fun. It was a, a nice because they sent you. I don't know if Janine talked about, it, but they sent you this like six pages. Oh, I got it. Um, I was doing it as well. I got this. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did you pick? What did you pick? Oh, I picked. Um... Oh, you put from reverence to rape on there. Oh, obviously, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that was the first one. That's the only one I put on there because that way it waits more. Um, <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I don't what know what you... I put. Uh, I think I put Paul Cronin's book about Werner Herzog because I I love Werner Herzog and I love the way Paul sort of brings out the most Herzogian of of Werner. Um, I put Otto Friedrich's City of Nets, which then Janine told me. Oh, yeah, I love that. I didn't put that on, but I love that book. Yeah. 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 She sort of said, no, it's not. People, there's a lot wrong with that book. People love that book, but there's a lot wrong. And I was like, oh, oh, no. Um, But it's such a it's such a great read. It's a little bit like I actually I think I might put this on David Niven's The Moon, The Moon's a Balloon, where. You know, it's all bullshit, but it's so entertaining. It's so well written (laughs) that it's. um, and then I, the others, I can't remember. I really shouldn't say because obviously, uh, with the podcast, um, I've got 120 odd writers. Uh, I, like who the have book. I forget the name of it, but Bud Schulberg. I don't know how true that is either. Uh, I'm run, like, Sammy, like, run. No, it's about Hollywood. Ah, is it okay. called? Yeah, okay, maybe it or is. Run how Sammy. Sammy runs, or something like that. I, I think. guess so. I guess so. I guess so. Um, here's an example of. I'll sort of take a deep dive into something. A friend of mine recommended a French. I, I wanted to write about sound because I'm doing a lot of audio book. I mean, it sounds unrelated to cinema, but I love audio books because I can't, my eyesight is not that good. And I have a whole mm-hmm. range of audio books I listen to, including British procedurals. I have a favorite there too, but um, this is, uh, he, so he recommended this Michel Chion, who's a French critic who specializes in sound. Mm-hmm. And, his classic book is audio vision sound on the screen, which I have, I've just gotten sound on screen. I have, I've just gotten, I haven't read it yet, but I was, I suddenly started for some reason wanting reading something about Kubrick. And I wanted to look at eyes wide shut again. And he has a monograph. I think it's one of those, um, um, you know, BB, uh, BFI, BFI film, uh, mm-hmm. monographs on eyes wide shut and it's just brilliant and i'm not sure i agree with it i don't think eyes wide shut i'm not sure what i think of eyes wide shut i sort of go back and forth on it but i just loved reading that and then thinking about that and then seeing the film so this is why i love critics and i just would say this is why i have a hard time 
coming up with one book, but we will do that. We will revisit that, I hope. And I could just <laughs> blast off a whole bunch of them because I think that they, they're books that sh- should be read. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Molly. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I'm sorry I was kind of groggy, but uh, thank you. Okay. I'm going to cut the, the recording there. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Molly. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did, as you can as you can hear. It was a really interesting insight into a period, and also um, just just interesting to compare it to how things are today in the state of criticism, the state of uh, thought uh, and feminism uh, that we are living through at the moment. Uh, all that remains is for me to thank Elia Atkins who did the music and to thank you dear listener and to see you next week Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.